him. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Our focus this morning will be primarily on verse 18. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. The phrase, I'm over it, have you ever said that? Or, I've had enough. What about that one? Or, I've had it up to here. You ever said that? We say those things about the matters of life, whether it's a long drawn out drama or an annoying noise or whatever it may be. We say things like that all the time. But I think if we're honest, we don't say things like that enough concerning our own remaining sin. We need to because it's God, does he not, who calls us to be ever growing more and more into his likeness. Growing in sanctification. And when we think of the term and hear the term sanctification, we need to understand it two ways. Positionally and practically. At the point of faith, being justified by faith, we are positionally sanctified. We're set apart. We're made holy. Not that there's any holiness in of ourselves, but we're made holy because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But practically, we're on a journey. Sanctification. And In order to be on that journey and in order to grow continually more and more like Christ, we need to focus our attention the next little while upon verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And so let's read that together. Verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The Spirit. I have three headings I want to give you right up front for you to hang your thoughts and notes and minds upon. We will pull out of verse 18, number one, the philosophy regarding transformation, this transformation that we must make and we are on, this journey of transformation. We'll see, number one, the philosophy regarding transformation. Number two, we'll see the resources that ensure transformation. And lastly, and most importantly indeed, number three, we'll see the dynamics of transformation. As I have read the works of the likes of John Owen and John Flavel, who centered their entire ministries really around this great truth of the sanctifying work of beholding Jesus Christ. And as I've revisited the works of my dear friend Mike Riccardi, of whom I want to tell you, along with John Owen and John Flavel, is where I've drawn much of my understanding and flow of thought for this message. I've been stirred in my heart of the utter necessity for this to be grasped by each and every believer. And so, With the Lord's help, with the Spirit's enabling, I want to show you what it means to be continually transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus and how it is that we do so. I mean, we all want less of ourselves and more of Him, right? I mean, that was the cry of John the Baptist. I must decrease and He must increase. And the paradox is, the more He increases in your life, because of your increased knowledge of Him, which leads to an increase in your affections for Him, you begin to see just how much you're not like Him. And oddly, that's a very good thing. We need to be seeing in an ever-increasing fashion the areas in our life where we are not like Him. That's what He wants from us. You see, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Now, 
I understand the whole idea of being sanctified, as we just read there in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, of being sanctified by beholding the glory of the Lord can be very tricky and confusing upon first look and difficult to comprehend. So what I want to do, though feeble my attempt will be, is help to bridge the gap, connect the dots for you there, because it is so incredibly crucial that we do so. And so as we go along this morning, it will be my aim with the Lord's help, the Spirit's enabling, to aid you and I in the appropriation of this truth, that is the grasping of this truth that we might live it out. And so let's begin by looking at the first of three headings I have for you. Number one, the philosophy regarding transformation. Note in the very middle of verse 18 there, the word transformed. It's from where we get the word metamorphosized, like when a a caterpillar comes out of a cocoon, a butterfly, right? And as we consider the philosophy of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves a question. Where does this ongoing transformation take place? First, I want you to understand, it does not take place on the outside. Having gray hair and wrinkles, being follically challenged like I am, does not equate to Christ's likeness. Instead, what the transformation of in verse 18 is speaking about is the inward change in the heart. Look ahead to verse 16 of chapter 4 for a moment. Says, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, gray hair, follically challenged, whatever it may be for you, wrinkles. He says, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, day by day. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to good work to, for his good pleasure. And again, listen to Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, the inside. So as we think about our progressive transformation into Christ's likeness, we need to understand that our progression in holiness is not solely about bringing our external behaviors into conformity with a type of external standard that we've created. An example. We shouldn't think that the aim of the Christian life and growth in Christ's likeness, our sanctification, our transformation, comes down to more church attendance, more service in the church, sharp dress and a Bible tucked under your arm, accompanied by pleasant speech and a midweek Bible study and prayer before bed. Now for certain, when we're born again by the Spirit of God, born from above, And when we are continually transformed on the inside, our external behavior will certainly change. But understand this, that is the fruit of the internal transformation taking place in our lives, not the other way around. Don't get that mixed up. So the philosophy or principle of transformation does not consist primarily of changing our outward actions, but the changing of our hearts on the inside. Which then results in a change of outward actions. Often we get that back to front, you see. We think that if we increase the outward, then the inward will change. But our hearts must be changed first. 
the entire idea and philosophy of ongoing transformation into the likeness of Christ is that the more the inner man changes, the less sin will be prevalent in our lives. Sin's like poor responses. You ever, you ever done that? I have. Sin's like defensive pride. You ever been found wanting in there? I have. Sin's like bitterness and selfishness and the like. And so first, transformation is on the inside. Second, another important thing to consider and understand in this principle of interpretation, a transformation rather, into greater holiness, is second, the fact that transformation is predominantly God's work in us. Think again upon Philippians 2.13. It says, it is God who is at work in you. God. And we see exactly that at the very end of verse 18 there, of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where it says that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit, the Spirit of God. We see there from the end of verse 18 that it is the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. It is He who brings about this transformation in our lives. It is by the Spirit who brings about this going from one level of glory to the next, one level of Christ-likeness to the next. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 refers to as God the Spirit as the Spirit of glory. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of holiness. So with the Spirit of God so involved in the work of transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ, we must also think of transformation not only as something done inside of us, but also as a supernatural work done to us by God. Because when you think of the results of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, what comes to mind? That is, what is the fruit that He brings to bear in the life of a Christian, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? So, we are progressively transformed because of the internal change taking place in our hearts by the work of the Spirit. That is the philosophy of transformation. But how? What about the how of transformation? How do we actually grow? In holiness. How do we go from one level to another? Well, that's where we pick up the second heading this morning. Number two, the resources that ensure transformation. Now, each of these resources really are what makes up what is known as the available means of grace. We've seen at the end of verse 18 and just heard that this process of transformation comes from the Spirit, the Spirit of God. But we need to understand that our growth isn't simply just let go and let God, right? Instead, as has been well said, we need to put ourselves in the Holy Spirit's way. That's what we need to do in order for this ongoing and so very essential transformation to take place in our life. We need to be making use of all the available means of grace that are afforded to us by the Spirit of God. And we need to get ourselves in His way. The next part that I'm about to mention 
is so very important because it introduces for us the first of five resources we need to utilize in order to be progressively transformed. You see, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we're called to live a spirit-filled life. And we see in the verses that follow, in verses 19 to 20, the results of a spirit-filled life. You know those. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. And then in Colossians 3.16, we're called there to live a word-filled life. And we see there too the results of a word-filled life are to teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness. In your hearts to God. So what does that tell us? That tells us that in order to live a spirit-filled life and to get ourselves in the Spirit's way, as it were, we need to live a word-filled life. And so the first resource that's afforded to us as believers that ensures ongoing transformation is the Scripture. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them, that is, bring about transformation in them by the truth. What did he say? Your word is truth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow. That's the first resource. The second resource that ensures continual transformation in a Christ-likeness is prayer. Prayer. You see, we must ask God for the wisdom we need to navigate away from that which displeases Him to drive toward the things that please Him. We need wisdom. We're often overwhelmed with temptation, flooded with despair as we face a plethora of trials, both of which can give birth to sin in our lives due to our sinful responses. But when we pray... We find, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, what do we find? Mercy and grace. When? In the time of need. That's the second resource. Third, a resource often neglected in our very individualistic, very self-reliant culture is third, fellowship. Fellowship. Biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship where we have the courage to encourage one another. To greater and greater holiness in our lives. Fellowship both corporately like we're doing right now on the Lord's Day. And fellowship in small groups during the week and in the coffee shop and as we go about the place. They, that is a great means of transformation into Christ's likeness. Where you have an attitude of speak into my life. And where you have an attitude matched with humility and great wisdom. Allow me to speak into yours. We hinder... Our love for Christ, our love for others, our sanctification by a lack of biblical fellowship. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 and 25 calls us to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing Near. So, now, something to point out is the point of that passage is not primarily about wagging the finger at those who don't attend church. The point of that passage is to urge those in the church to stir up those in the church to greater and greater likeness to Christ. We're made holy when we fellowship with holy people. 
Next, the fourth resource that ensures transformation is providence. Providence. You see, in the providence of God, that is by His mighty providing hand, we find ourselves in trials and afflictions. James tells us that there will be many of them. And they'll be of differing types. In James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, we are called to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's transformation. We find ourselves in those various trials by the providence of God. Because he wants to, as he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 29, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Then what does it say? In verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, what? He also predestined to what? To become conformed into the image of his son. All circumstances, all trials, all of life's experiences, all the good, all the bad, the easy, the hard. They all have as their aim, hand-delivered by the providential hand of God to transform us into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one more resource that ensures transformation, and it's fifth, obedience. Obedience. Well, you ask, how is obedience a resource? Good question. Let me show you. In John chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, and Scott, you wonderfully unfolded this for us in a beautiful way. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Please note here that Jesus is not talking about the Mosaic law of the Ten Commandments found in the Old Covenant, but the law of Christ found in the New Covenant. That is, if we display love for God and love for others, which is the fulfillment of the law of Christ, we will abide in His love. So what Jesus is saying is that when we live for Him, that is when we obey Him, we increase. It comes down to this, that, that you're not putting yourself in the Spirit's way. So it's without which none of what we're about to look at even matters. Because we've seen, number one, the philosophy of transformation. We just looked at, number two, the resources that ensure transformation. But here now is where it all comes together and here is the very dynamics, number three, the dynamics of transformation. Look again at our verse this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We find in here the heartbeat, the essential dynamic. And really, what each of the resources that we just looked at find their very anchor. And that is in the beholding of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. But grasp this concept first. You see, to behold means to intently observe and to study with the purpose to know. To intently observe and to study with the purpose to know. So what Paul is saying here in verse 18 is that as we behold, 
That is, as we study to know Jesus, we're transformed. Progressively into the likeness of Christ. It's remarkable, really. We looked at so far what transformation is. We've looked at how we play our part in it. But unless we grasp what Paul is saying here in verse 18 and grasp the immensity of it, we'll miss this great truth. And to ensure that we don't miss it, we need to consider the context of verse 18. Look at verse 4. Verses 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 through to verse 17. Let me read those. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All the way through to verse 17, it's Moses and the old covenant. Moses was the leader of the Israelites. And in the events leading up to the giving of the law to Israel, Exodus 33, Moses was aware of his great need of help, wasn't he? And what did he pray? Show me your glory. Exodus 34, Moses climbs up the mountain. The Lord passed by. And as he comes by, what did he do? He proclaimed his attributes, saying, The Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, but who will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so we see from that, God's glory is expressed in his attributes. Moses prayed to see God's glory, and so God revealed his attributes. His glory is wrapped up in his attributes. Then as Moses comes down off Mount Sinai, the skin of his face was shining. It terrified the priests. It terrified the people of Israel. And so Moses put a veil over his face. And we read that there. But if, verse 7, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory. And so, look at what Paul does to show just how more glorious this new covenant and the Christ of this new covenant is. He's making contrast all the way through there. Look at verse 10. For indeed, what had glory, that's the old covenant, in this case, has no glory. Why does it have no glory? Because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, For that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Then he says, as a new covenant minister, therefore having such hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was what? Fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, there remains a veil unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is 
liberty. Contrast all the way through there between two covenants. The glory of the old covenant fades away, but the glory of the new covenant remains. The ministry of the spirit of the new covenant is far more glorious. Is what Paul's saying there. Paul is saying that the glory that was expressed outwardly in the face of Moses is in contrast with the glory that is expressed inside the heart of man when the believer with unveiled face looks upon Christ. You see, the crucial dynamic of sanctification is to look upon Christ. To look upon Christ. No wonder the author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes upon Jesus because we see in Him all the glory of God on display. When Peter, James and John were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration up on the mountain, John went on to write of that very thing in John chapter 1 verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory of, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Simply put, in the beholding is the transforming. In the beholding of the Lord Jesus Christ, and remember the definition of, the, of beholding is to study, to observe, with the intent to know. To become more like Him, we need to behold Him. To behold is to intently know Him, who He is. Which begs the question, begs the question, how do we behold His glory? Time and time again, when we look in Scripture, we kind of think the answer to matters like this needs to be some mystical thing. That surely it cannot be so simple and ordinary. But we must always remember, God uses ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary things in the life of a believer. And we've seen that time and time again in this conference thus far. You see, he didn't write his word in the sky. He wrote it in a book. And so, we behold the transforming glory of the Lord Jesus Christ... By going to the place that His glory is revealed. And it's not up in a cloud. It's in the living and active, Spirit-inspired Word of God. Because what happens when we come, Spirit-filled, obedient, in fellowship with believers, in prayer, is that we then read Scripture with all our spiritual faculties engaged. And we then grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is. And then because of what we learn about Him, our affections are then inflamed for Him. And because of that, that then drives our wills and we want to live for Him. Knowledge, affections, will. You see, in all our strivings in the Christian life, The beholding of the glory of Jesus Christ is the very epicenter to every resource and every means afforded to us as the people of God. There is no greater place on earth in this new covenant age where the glory of the Lord of Jesus Christ is beheld than the Word of God. Even as we pray, even as we pray, we're drawn to praise His beauty and attributes which are revealed to us in the Scripture. Even as we meditate upon Him, we meditate upon what has been given to us and revealed to us 
in the Scripture. Even when we fellowship with other believers who themselves are being transformed from one level of glory to another, we are then transformed ourselves because we see Christ in them. And why do we see Christ in them? Because we see Christ in the Scripture. Even as we look, about, look out upon creation and marvel about how it reveals the glory of God, we know from Scripture in places like Colossians 1.16, that Jesus, by Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. And so the ultimate dynamic to increasing in Christ-likeness and decreasing in sin and sinful responses is to look intently upon the person of Christ and behold His glory. In the place His glory is beheld, the Word of God. The Spirit-inspired Word of God. We've got to take this dynamic, grasp the importance of this dynamic, grasp the immensity of it, run with it, value it, prioritize it. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 8, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of what? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? So that I might gain Christ. As we gaze, gaze intently upon Him, we become more and more like Him. Listen to what John Owen wrote. John Owen said this, quote, Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. And when you do that, Owen says, Virtue will proceed from Him to repair all our decays. To renew a right spirit within us. And to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. Owen says, it will fix the soul unto that object which is suited to give it delight and satisfaction. End quote. Let me put it this way. As you bury your face in the word of God. Asking the Lord by his Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you you will be face to face with Jesus Christ. And in His face is all the glory of God. And what Moses did learn on that mountain, what did he learn? He learned that the glory of God is seen in God's attributes. And so by studying the riches of Christ, the person of Christ. By studying His pre-incarnation where He was with the Father in eternity past. By studying His incarnation where He took on human flesh. By studying His teachings where He teaches truths so immense that your heart literally bursts within you. By studying His miracles where He validates who He was and gives a glimpse of the kingdom to come. By studying His arrests and His trials where he had every right to demand his own rights, but he didn't do so. By studying his active obedience, which is where our righteousness comes from. By studying his death and atonement, where he died a death where we could never die. And he paid a price that you and I could never pay. By studying his resurrection and his ascension, his ministry as the glorified Christ, where he intercedes for us, his role at the judgment seat, His second coming, His millennial reign, His great white throne judgment, 
His role in all of eternity in the new heavens and earth where we will be just like Him because we'll see Him fully, finally, face to face. You see, as you look intently at all of that and you study Christ, your affections for Him will be taken to new heights and your transformation into His image will be taken from one level to the next. And He will increase and ourselves and our sinful responses will decrease. The cry will still be the same. I'm over it. I've had it up to here. I want it gone. But we'll be more like Christ and we'll be able to then see the sin we never saw before. That's when you know you're on the journey. And so the journey of transformation goes on until we are ushered into glory where we'll see Him face to face. But until then, look down at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. If I go to be with the Lord before you, I want this written on my gravestone. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You and I see the wonderful things and have the ability now to behold the glory of Christ because God turned the lights on. He turned them on. Praise the Lord. We've looked at the philosophy of transformation. We looked at the resources and there's the dynamic. Behold the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for the immense privilege it is. Father, may the, the very understanding of what it means to be a child of God and the privilege it is to be a child of God never, ever escape our hearts and our minds. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for sending at that right time your Son. Thank you that in eternity past, the triune God made a pact of salvation. Thank you for this time. Help us to study the person of Christ and do all things in remembrance of Him as we come around the Lord's table and as we live our life to be fixing our eyes upon Him. I pray for this precious people. I pray, Father, that we would all, with unveiled for haste, Behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and as a result, to your glory, be transformed from one level of glory to the next by the Spirit. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.